Epiphany Church in Ligonier, Pennsylvania. On Friday a thief, on Sunday a king, laid down in grief, but I walk with the key to hell. Hallelujah, brothers and sisters. Jesus Christ is risen from the grave. Welcome to Epiphany's podcast, a ministry of Epiphany Anglican Fellowship in Ligonier, Pennsylvania. Our church exists to help people discover and rediscover the love of God in the Christian gospel. For more information about our church, you can visit us online at epiphanyligonier.org. If you're in church or you were in church today, I'd point to a image on the front of your bulletins. But since we're online, I want to point to the image that came in the email uh, that came through uh, on the MailChimp. If that's how you got here uh, to listen to this sermon today. Um, twice in the Bible, you see in Isaiah 2 and in our reading today from Michael 4, the prophets envision a future where God is king and there is no more war. Okay, And uh, to present this idea, the prophets offer a metallurgical vision uh, that this statue, the image of the statue that I'm pointing you to, captures. Um, The prophets say they will beat their swords into plowshares. That's what Micah and Isaiah say. And the idea is that while swords will be unnecessary um, because, um, well, God is going to be the king. Uh, So the idea is that swords are going to become unnecessary one day because God is king and he's going to rule over everything. And so, well, who are you going to fight anymore when God is king? And so let's take our swords and heat them in a furnace and beat them with a hammer and begin to bend and twist them into a shape uh, to use them as farm tools instead of swords. So we're going to plant and we're going to harvest and we're going to make food and we're not going to fight anymore. And so Micah has this vision that when God is king, well, you might as well just turn your weapons into farm tools. It's a compelling image. And uh, the statue on our bulletins today depicts that action. And so in the email, if you want to pull it up, I'm going to refer to this image a handful of times in the sermon. And uh, if you're listening and you don't have the bulletin or you don't have the email, I'm going to try to make sure this image comes to you through the podcast feed. But um, if you want to Google it, um, I want you to Google it, uh, the 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 title of this statue, uh, this work of art, is Let Us Beat Our Shore Swords Into Plowshares. And the artist is Evgeny Uchevich. I, I butchered his last name. I'm so sorry, Evgeny. And um, the statue is made out of bronze, and you can see it today. It's a real statue, and it's in the UN headquarters in the Sculpture Garden in New York City. So you can go to New York City and go to the Sculpture Garden outside the UN headquarters. And this image of a man uh, beating his sword into a plowshare is there. And this statue was donated to the UN in 1959 by the Soviet Union. And it features that old Soviet Union communist art style, you know? It's a muscle-bound Superman of colossal size and strength representing the power of the working class 
and this this muscle bound super worker takes his massive hammer and strikes a bent sword, literally beating it into a plowshare. And his hand is up, and his muscles are all engaged, and he's got a furrowed brow, and he is beating uh, this sword into a plowshare as Micah had envisioned. And I am captivated by this statue. And I have gone so far as to look for a cheap replica of this statue for my bookshelf in the church office here. Uh, maybe there was a, a plastic or a cast iron cheap version that I could buy for myself. I couldn't find it, by the way. So um, I couldn't find it. But that I'm, I'm just that compelled by it. And I'm compelled by this statue for a couple of reasons. First, I love the biblical illusion. I, too, look forward to a day when we can get rid of weapons of war because God is king. That's the first reason I like it. The second reason I like it is just because it's a marvelous statue. I mean, it's super cool looking. Um, maybe a little Soviet for my political taste. I'm not really, you know, um, communist in that regard. Uh, but uh, I think it's just a really beautiful statue as well. Just aesthetically, it's pretty. But the third, the reason why it really gets to me, the, the main reason why I love this statue, is that this statue is a powerful allegory about the pitfalls of humanism. This is a powerful allegory about the pitfalls of humanism. Humanism, if you didn't know, is this philosophical idea that celebrates uh, human potential. And it's sort of in the air we breathe as Americans in the 21st century. Uh, humanists believe that, that we human beings are capable of untold good if we can simply be rid of our petty selfishnesses and partner together in solidarity and apply our rationality to the world's problems. And so while the prophets had hoped that swords would be turned to plowshares when God is king, this statue kind of celebrates the human condition with its muscular physique and its dynamic strength, you know? Um, if you're going to go purely by statues, this is a statue of man as God in its perfection. And maybe the statue suggests that God doesn't have to be king in order for us to go ahead and turn our swords into plowshares. Maybe the strength and determination and discipline and willpower that humans can muster to, when we work together, maybe we could make that happen. Uh, maybe that's what we could do. But with the benefit of hindsight, we can see there's a, a real sense of disappointment and irony that this statue was donated in 1959 because, um, well, the Cold War had been on for about a decade at that point. And this statue, of course, was a gift from the two um, great opponents, right? Uh, the USSR to New York City. That's where the, the statue landed. And this is 1959. That was the year that Russia, Russia launched Sputnik. Some of you remember that? The first satellite kicking off the space race. The Berlin Wall was about to go up. The Bay of Pigs invasion would soon fail. The Cuban Missile Crisis was on the horizon. Um, if you were in grade school at the time, you were practicing your nuclear bomb drills with a little duck and cover going on. Kennedy and Khrushchev were not getting along. And so this statue was a symbol of peace and the end of war given during a season when the U.S. and the USSR were stockpiling nuclear weapons with their fingers hovered above dangerous little red buttons. <laughs> and so for the statue's beauty and its peaceful message, for all of its hope of power, uh, power in the, the people, power of the secular and humanist ideas, the statue arrived in the year 1959 with an air of cognitive dissonance. 
you know, to update the imagery a little bit here, nobody at the time was considering seriously smelting their guns into plumber's pipes. Nobody is retrofitting their fighter jets for commercial service. No one is converting their uranium bombs to power stations. Not in 1959. And so I find this statue compelling as a disgraced monument to humanism, highlighting both the high ideals of our secular world while also highlighting a decades-long failure to live up to those ideas. And so if any of you do find a version of it online, uh, maybe on eBay or Amazon, and you feel like getting me a Christmas gift next year, you know, here's a good idea. <laughs> Text me about it, and I'll pay you back if you don't want to buy it as a Christmas gift. And I'm going to speak um, some more about this statue in a little bit here because it's going to serve as an illustration of the new sermon series that I want to kick off on this side of Easter. And I'm calling this series um, Of First Importance, Of First Importance, The First Sermons Ever Preached. And what we're going to do is we're going to look at a powerful message from the ancient world that actually did lead to someone um, going through a spiritual disarmament of sorts. <laughs> And I've highlighted the historical improbability of the Christian faith to you before, right? I've talked with you at length about how the Roman Empire was overtaken by a religion that sought to spill no blood but its own. Not the blood of its enemies, but it would rather shed its own blood than its enemies die. And I've shared with you how so many of the ideas that we take for granted in our own time, care for the poor, equality of sex and race, uh, forgiveness and the restoration of wrongdoers, I've shared with you how those ideas were injected into the human consciousness by Jesus Christ himself. And so what I want to put forward to you today, especially as we at Epiphany are shifting our thoughts toward preaching the gospel in our community, um, it's worth studying, I think, what these first disciples of Jesus communicated when they started on this grand mission. I want to I want to talk about the message that actually did change the world. What was it that these early disciples were saying to one another and to the crowds and to the people that they interacted with that changed the Roman Empire that made Roman emperors ditch a pantheon of capricious pagan gods and embraced Jesus Christ as their Lord. What was the content of that message, right? Because these first Christians were very quick to confess that they were not polished orators or public speakers of any notoriety. They say that point blank. It's like, we didn't uh, come to you with fancy speech or eloquence to tell you about this. And it's unlikely to be the case that they were simply convincing people to become Christians with flattery or ornate speech. They weren't looking to, to, to come out and sort of, you know, buddy-buddy with people and say, hey, you should become a Christian because I am and I'm your friend. The Bible says itself that hearing... Uh, is the message through which faith comes, right? Not seeing, not necessarily touching or tasting or smelling, but hearing. Um, hearing words that pass from the lips of, of one person to the ears of another. And so what exactly is the content of the speech that people heard when they first heard about Jesus 2,000 years ago? Perhaps if we study that, we might find something less disappointing and more useful than a monument to human ability. That's what I'd like for us to do today. And to help us understand what we're talking about, I want to begin our series with St. Paul's reflection on first things in 1 Corinthians 15. I've, I've spoken with you before about how I think 1 Corinthians 15 is the most, um, if it's not the most important um, chapter in the entirety of the Bible, in the entirety of the New Testament, it's like top five. Uh, and so I want to go through this with you this morning. It's in, in your bulletins. It's on page five. 
And um, the chapter starts off with this. Here's what St. Paul says. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So Paul is writing to this church in Corinth, and Corinth is notorious for being a very troubled church. They're squabbling over all of these matters of superiority. Who's the most gifted? Who has the best spiritual pedigree? Who was baptized by the most prominent teacher? And while they're arguing over who's the best, they're ignoring some serious red flags about what's going on among them. Sexual immorality is going unaddressed. The poor are excluded from fellowship. Christians are even suing each other in pagan law courts. And false teachers are coming in and messing everything up by corrupting the original gospel message. Lots of stuff is going on, and Paul addresses all of these matters in chapters 1 through 14. And so as he's coming to the end of this letter that he is sending in 1 Corinthians, um, his whole argument, his thesis, his understanding of the root of all of this dysfunction is that the church in Corinth has forgotten the core claim of the Christian faith. Paul says, I would remind you of the word that I originally brought you when I was among you in person, says Paul. In other words, don't you remember what I said when I first came to you? And then he goes on to articulate exactly what that word was. And here's what Paul says. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. That's how our chapter begins. And this word of first importance that Paul outlines can be boiled down to something like this. Let me summarize what I just read to you. Um, What does Paul say was of first importance? He says this, Jesus Christ died and we saw him bodily come back to life. It turns out this was according to God's plan and the result is the forgiveness of our sins. There you go. That's, That's what we have so far. And Paul goes on to remind the church that there were lots of lots of people who saw Jesus's resurrected body. Peter, the 12 apostles. And at one point, Jesus says, uh, Paul says that Jesus appeared to more than 500 people at one time. And then he goes on to emphasize how the bodily resurrection of Jesus is a cornerstone of the Christian faith. But then he concludes his thoughts towards the end of the chapter here, uh, or the end of our passage, um, with a, a few more things. He says there's, there's a little bit more to tack on than to what we just read. And it's in the second column in page six uh, of, your, of your bulletins. And it goes like this. Then comes the end. So after Jesus died and rose again and forgiveness of sins happens, here's what Paul says. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. So not only has Jesus died and risen, but he will also put the world under his benevolent reign. 
death will be defeated. Every principality and power will be squashed. Every corrupt government, every um, evil Roman emperor, uh, they will all be undone when Jesus returns. Jesus Christ is going to come and fix everything wrong with the world and present it back to God the Father restored to its original goodness. Just like the prophets foretold, uh, God would be king over everything. And so we can turn our weapons into farming equipment. Um, that's what comes at the end. So let's put it all together, right? Like this passage actually gives us insight into what Paul said when he first got off the boat and was putting a church together in Corinth. He actually says, here's what I told you from the beginning. And I, I'm going to summarize it to you very shortly like this. This is what Paul said to the church in Corinth at the very beginning. Jesus Christ died and bodily came back to life according to God's plan. This same Jesus will return to fix the world to the goodness God intended it to be. There is judgment to everyone who opposes Jesus' rule, and there is forgiveness to anyone who asks for it. Now, if we go through the entirety of the New Testament, this core message is at the heart of every single sermon that we have recorded from the disciples. Jesus died and rose again. Jesus is coming to judge and fix the world. Repent for being a part of the problem. Repent for being a part of the problem. Receive forgiveness and become part of the solution. And then in the coming weeks, we're going to go through all of these in, uh, New Testament sermons, and we're going to see how this plays itself out. And that's our sermon series to come. Um, uh, we're going to look at this idea of what is of first importance. And that idea is threefold. Jesus died and rose again. Um, he's coming back to fix the world to what it should be. And if you oppose it, you're in big trouble. But the good news is there's forgiveness of sins to anyone who wants to jump on board. And so that's what our sermon series is going to highlight. We're going to go through, spend a lot of time in the book of Acts looking at those various things. I think one of the great illnesses that has infected our modern church is that this core message of death and resurrection and forgiveness and restoration, that has been discarded in favor of other doctrines and disciplines. And so when you enter the doors of any particular church today, instead of a good word about Jesus' death and resurrection, you're likely to get something else. In some churches, you're going to walk in and you're going to hear five things you can do to better your marriage that all happen to start with the letter C. Um, it's like communication and be more Christian and um, conflict resolution and two other ones. Uh, I don't know why they always start with C, but they always do. So you're going to get that in some churches. In other churches, you're going to get an extended discussion about how God wants you to have lots and lots of money. And if you believe with enough fervor, he will cure your cancer. You're going to get health and wealth. Um, I, totally ironic given the fact that Jesus died and rose again. It's like, yes, I want you to live an entire life with zero suffering involved. Um, no, no, thank you. Um, maybe you're going to walk into a church today and you're going to get a, an extended lecture on how God wants you to become a social or a political activist. And then you're going to leave the service and you'll go to your car and you're going to find information about a local political cause tucked underneath your windshield wiper as you leave church that day. That's a true story, by the way. That happened to Beth and I once when we visited a church. Um, we learned all about this political cause because someone, while we were all in the service, tucked um, leaflets underneath all our windshield wipers. And I don't know if the church planned that or not, but it's true. I mean, sometimes you go to church and you get a, um, a political rally. Uh, maybe you'll be told how you need to be aware of your implicit racism in some churches. Or maybe in other churches, you're going to need to be more self-controlled in your lust. 
or you're going to be harangued about praying more or evangelizing more or going to the soup kitchen more. Um, you're going to be told that the kingdom of God comes as a result of your political and social action. Or maybe you're just going to be given a so sermon so useless and disorganized, you're going to walk away feeling unsure of what was communicated to you at all. That's another thing that happens as well. Uh, that's what you can get from a lot of churches in America. And whenever we preach one of these messages in our own time to someone who's outside of the Christian congregation, whenever we present them with something that is not the Christian gospel, we present them with a spiritual version of our statue on the front of our bulletins. What we're doing, you see, when we don't give people the gospel is we're giving them uh, some lofty vision of grandeur that's completely divorced from real life as it's actually lived and experienced. We in the church, friends, we are not humanists. And as the world around us wishes us to be, we can't do that. We do not celebrate the innate goodness of humans, and we do not believe that our problems can be solved by ingenuity and hard work. Um, we are not trying uh, to keep the boat from sinking. We are earnestly calling for a rescue boat. The only message, friends, that we have as Christians that can make the world a better place, the only message that we as Christians have that is in any way good news that transforms or brings growth, the only message that we as Christians have that will inspire people to turn their swords into plowshares is this. Jesus Christ died and rose from the dead, and he's coming back to judge the world. We can either be part of the problem and oppose his rule, or we can ask for forgiveness and become part of the solution. And it's just not for people outside the fold either. There is no different secret sauce for people who have been Christians for any length of time. As St. Paul says in our reading, when we are overtaken by the struggles and the frustrations and the tragedies of life, our only hope for help is to go back to the message that was given before, the thing of first importance, as St. Paul says. These friends are Christians uh, who have simply forgotten the core of the Christian gospel, that Christ has died, Christ has risen, and Christ will come again. When I was a young man um, exploring my initial call into ministry, a pastor mentor of mine confided with me one of his great preaching secrets, and I th thought him to be a very good preacher, and I thought this is sort of funny and ironic, and I share it with you now. He said this, I only have two sermons that I ever preach, and the first is the gospel. I just switch out the Bible passage and the illustrations each week. And the second sermon I preach is a funeral homily, which is also the gospel, but with a little bit of eulogy attached for the person who died. So I guess that's still the gospel with the eulogy switched out at every funeral. So I guess I only preach one sermon. I just switch out the illustrations. And I think that's right. I think that's right. And I think we're going to see that in the weeks to come. Paul and Peter and Stephen, they all keep the core message the same. They all keep the core message the same. And they contextualize the details to their environment. But preaching from the start... Um, what they preach from the start is the same, that Jesus Christ died and rose again, our sins are forgiven, and he is coming back as king to judge and restore the world to its original goodness. And so this morning, friends, I offer to you as a cautionary tale about this great Christian gift of the gospel, I offer you this statue. Because we have something of profound and everlasting value that we can give to those around us. We can give them this hollow, ineffective monument to ideals that we perpetually fall short of achieving, or 
we could give them the news that leads to everlasting life. As we say each week in our communion service, as I said a little bit ago, I say to you again now, Christ has died, Christ has risen, and Christ will come again. Share that with those around you and watch the work of God happen in your very midst as faith begins to blossom and people consider, maybe for the first time ever, spiritual disarmament. And they consider, for the first time ever, beating their swords into plowshares. In Jesus' name, amen. Mm. On Friday, a thief. On Sunday. Pennsylvania.